Welcome to Lung Cancer Concerted, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud and at islc.org in the newsroom. We are your hosts, Dr. Narjus Flores and Dr. Stephen Liu. This is Lung Cancer Considered. We're here with the Tuesday highlights of the World Conference on Lung Cancer in Singapore. My name is Dr. Stephen Liu from Georgetown University, and I'm joined by... And your other host, Dr. Narjas Flores from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. We're delighted to have three wonderful hosts for this episode, and I will start introducing... Uh, Mrs. Dusty Donaldson. She's the founder and executive director of the Dusty Joy Foundation, Leaf Lund. She also is a co-chair of the Lung Cancer Action Network, Lung Can, a collaborative association of lung cancer nonprofit organizations and patient advocacy groups. Thank you for being here. Thank you so much for the opportunity to share this exciting project that the lung cancer advocacy community um, has been working on. So uh, for those who don't know much about lung can, um, as you said, it is a, a collaborative association of nonprofit associations and uh, advocates and patient biomarker groups and so on. We have a mission of uniting and amplifying the patient and the lung cancer um, advocacy community. So it's it's quite exciting. But you know, like what um, ISLAC does here, you've got different uh, researchers working with other institutions, but you didn't you don't see a lot of that in the lung cancer advocacy community. But with lung can, these lung cancer advocates will come together and they work on shared causes. So this project I'm real excited about was the was the project to get increased lung cancer research funding. As you know, lung cancer funding is um, severely um, underfunded. Lung cancer research is underfunded. So the second largest funder of lung cancer research in the U.S. is the um, congressionally directed medical research programs, lung cancer research program. Now that program was established in 2009 at a level of $20 million. And unfortunately, year after year, it just kept getting um, decreased instead of increased. So we were pretty discouraged as um, an advocacy community, but we really rallied and tried to at least get the 20 million, original 20 million restored, which we did in, I believe it was uh, 2020. But if you think about inflation, I mean, the, the, the 20 million was, re we lost a lot of funding when uh, you consider the inflation factor. We just got restored to 20 million from 2009 to 2021. So then uh, we decided we had to have a unified voice. And so all the organizations came together. All the lung can advocacy organizations came together. Lung can includes large organizations like um, American Cancer Society's Roundtable, Lung Cancer Roundtable, uh, Longevity, um, ALA, uh, and uh, you know, go-to foundation. So, and then smaller organizations like my own. So we came together and we had to agree on a reasonable ask of Congress because this fund uh, comes from Congress directly. Oh, I said we're the second largest funder, but I didn't mention the first one is the NCI. So we're only second to the NCI. So uh, based on the previous years, amazing 
research proposals that were submitted for the lung cancer research uh, program, if we had had $60 million, we could have funded, funded all of the programs that were exceptional, outstanding. So, uh, but instead, many of those proposals ended up in the trash can. So we thought 60 million was a good starting point to ask for. And so the community rallied together and we got so many uh, outside organizations, um, like cancer centers and uh, thoracic um, oncology uh, organizations, nursing organizations, and they all supported this. Now, the upshot was that we fell far short of our $60 million ask, but we were the only CDMRP program to uh, cancer program to get an increase. So we got a 25% increase. So we went from 20 million to 25 million, which was the highest amount we'd ever received for lung cancer research. And we're hopeful we're going to continue to build on this. So this was a grassroots movement. A lot of patient advocate, patient activists, survivors, and caregivers. Can you walk us through that experience of recruiting? Uh, all these individuals to advocate to improve the funding for lung cancer? Sure, well we have these, like I said, the larger organizations, they had platforms to, you know, and training um, to recruit and to train advocates to ask, how to ask Congress for additional funding. But it was even so much greater than that, we had, nurses reaching out to us and saying, how can we support this? What can we do within our organization? And then, you know, individual uh, patients just signing on and they would share an email with uh, their friends and family members. We had um, uh, over 55, oh, I'm afraid to say the numbers now, but let's see, I think we had 1,800 individuals that each sent three emails uh, to two senators and then to one, uh, their congressperson. And so we had amazing numbers. We blew up the internet with a lot of uh, adorable little memes with uh, memes with kittens and uh, just whatever we could use to help get people's attention to take action to ask the senator or congressman for funding. But yes, it was totally a grassroots. And we had doctors like Dr. Gieske, um, and we had, uh, you know, Jill Morningstar, she worked on Capitol Hill. She was really the catalyst to bring us together for this. Her husband, Al Fitzpain, also works on Capitol Hill, and he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. And when they, you know, experienced that personally, they, they were kind of dumbfounded that people weren't beating down the door to ask for lung cancer research funding because they said, this is such a need, and we didn't know it until it, you know, it came to our doorstep. So um, they were really champions. And then there were so many people, we can't even name them all, but it was a grassroots effort. We had some weaknesses in certain states, like in Montana. We needed more people in Montana. And we hope to you know, reach out and hopefully grow so we'll have some of those weak areas shored up for next time. I think that the CDMRP does a lot of things really well. They were, I think, one of the first groups to really incorporate patient advocates in all of their grant reviews from an early peer review process, something that's been, uh, you know, fortunately catching on with other groups and, and it's been vitally important. I've met a lot of the, the wonderful advocates I know today through that program. But the funding, while it has, you know, uh, maintained what has gone up in, in, in some cases, and, and it's been really encouraging to see, still pales in comparison to other cancers like breast cancer. 
Why is it so low, and does stigma continue to play a role? Oh, Dr. Lou, that just breaks breaks my heart. And, and, and if you have that, um, if you have my PowerPoint slide in front of you, you might know the numbers offhand. I can't tell you right now, uh, but I can say that you know the funding for lung cancer compared to the deaths of lung cancer, it's just it's an atrocity. The disparity of funding for lung cancer compared to the other cancers. So I think it has a lot to do with the stigma of lung cancer. And the more we, you know, advocate and dispel this stigma, then I believe that people will understand this is just a wrong that needs to be righted. One question to you is, uh, we have audience from all across the globe. If someone in the U.S. or outside of the U.S. wants to work with your organization in this big effort, what will be the first step for them? How can they reach out? How can they become part of this movement? Well, they're certainly welcome to reach out to me directly. I'm uh, you know, happy to, to meet with them, talk with them. But especially if they are influential with legislators, that is, you know, you're seeing more and more of this uh, lung cancer, you know, hitting, hitting these legislators uh, directly. And the more, um, you know, the more awareness that we can bring and the more compassion we can bring, then the funding will come. And my last question about this, Dusty, is what are the next steps? We found a 25% increase, but knowing you and knowing the team, that's just the beginning for many of your goals. So how do you see this big effort moving forward? We want that $60 million, and it's a very reasonable ask. So we are, yes, we're getting in line to now. The, other, the larger organizations that have training and platforms, um, they're already training advocates and, you know, giving us um, a, a platform so that we can um, you know, so they can amplify our voices. And so we're working in harmony. This is the way that things are going to get done. Just like with, um, you know, the International Association for the Study of uh, Lung Cancer. I mean, these, um, all these different organizations come together and to get things done. And the same way with the advocacy groups. When we come together with one voice, with a united cause, we can get it done. Thank you so much. And I'll encourage everyone to, to go back and hop on the virtual platform, listen to Dusty's talk, as well as this next one, uh, our second guest with us today uh, from Singapore is Dr. Tetsuya Mitsudomi uh, from Thoracic Surgery, Kindai University Hospital in Osaka, Japan, former ISLAC president, and he gave us an important update on Aegean. Uh, we've, we saw a lot of interest at this meeting in early stage and locally advanced lung cancer, perioperative therapy. Tetsuya, can you talk a, a bit about the Aegean study and what you talked about here? Okay, thank you very much for inviting me. So that as, as you know, the immunotherapy has revolutionized the treatment of the metastatic lung cancer, so it is natural to apply this, this therapy to the perioperative. So the surgery is the most curative treatment for the early stage lung cancer, but still uh, many patients have recurrent disease after so-called curative surgery, so um, many people are now trying to use the immunotherapy, either preoperatively or postoperatively uh, use immunotherapy to improve the patient outcome. So Aegean is one such trial, which is uh, uh, evaluated perioperative, meaning that before and after the surgery, uh, in addition to the uh, neoadjuvant chemotherapy, 
The primary results of the AGN was uh, present, already presented in the AACR meeting in April. So the EFS hazard ratio is 0.68, and uh, also pathological CR rate is greatly improved. So my, uh, my task yesterday was to present the surgical outcomes of the AGN trial, whether perioperative uh, adversely impact uh, the surgical outcome. So uh, up to um, some 700 patients randomized between the Durbarma uh, plus chemotherapy followed by surgery followed by Durbarma versus chemotherapy placebo followed by surgery followed by placebo. And uh, about 20% of the patient did not complete surgery. So most common reason for that is um, is a disease progression, but there's no difference between the two arms. So addition of the Durbarma, of course, did not affect in that point. So the 20% of the uh, cancellation or not completing surgery may be the problem, but the, the, the relative uh, advanced stage disease, even it's early, but this stage two to three, A, three B with N2, so 20% is not so great number. Then we checked uh, the type of surgery, uh, operative procedure. So the, about half are the open surgery and about half are uh, minimal invasive. There's no difference between the two arms. Then operative about 90% are lobectomies, 10% pneumonectomies, but that number is again similar between the two arms. And the surgical delay, the incidence of surgical delay was also similar. And the interval uh, between the last dose of the new adjuvant treatment to the surgery and the interval between the surgery to the first adjuvant therapy is also very similar between the two arms. However, the, if you look at the R0 rate, R0 means uh, no remnant tumor behind. But numerically, a bit higher. So both arms, it's more than 90%, but numerically, a bit higher patients underwent uh, R0 resection in the uh, durable arm. And uh, uh, adverse events related to surgery instances, similar again, uh, complications similar. So, so in conclusion, that the uh, uh, addition of the perioperative durable arm plus neoadjuvant chemotherapy but showed a very nice efficacy, wise efficacy was very nice. However, it did not affect, uh, did not adversely affect uh, surgical parameters uh, I showed you before. So th this could be the one treatment option in the future. Now we've come a, a long way in this perioperative space, immunotherapy with pretty important outcomes. We see these pathologic complete responses. In the early days when we just had single-arm studies, we would give immunotherapy and there were these whispers, these anecdotal remarks that immunotherapy made the surgery a little harder, that uh, there was a lot of fibrosis, especially around the mediastinum, operative times. So there was concern that there would be more surgical complications, that surgery would be longer. And the data that's come out so far has really shown, if anything, it's the opposite, that there were fewer complications, maybe just numerically, but it seems like the surgeries go a little better. Does, does the immunotherapy make the surgery itself more challenging, in your opinion? Yes, yeah, so there's a, a sort of heterogeneous opinions, but uh, we do not have the huge experience with the preoperative neoadjuvant treatment, but as, as far as I experienced, 
the addition of the immunotherapy did not affect very much the surgical difficulty. That's very in good contrast to the pre-operative radiotherapy. Radiotherapy is very bad for us. So one of the questions that when present this approach to patients, um, the main concern is the surgery delay or that the surgery will not be possible. You walk us through those results. How will we be the best way to explain to our patients the benefit and that they will not affect the surgery? Surgery still remains the backbone or early stage. And sometimes my ladies are like, just take it out. How can we talk to our patients about yeah. the benefit of this? So the, so the except the stage one disease, stage two, three years already, I think, uh, advanced, I mean, with the micrometastasis, so the local control by surgery is not enough. So th that's why the many patients with recurrent disease, so the, the control of the uh, micrometastasis, which cannot be detected, is very important. So in that sense, so we need some kind of the systemic therapy. But uh, I, I understand that the patient, if the, pa the surgery became impossible after the neurological treatment, the patient may complain. So, so we have to explain very well to the, the curing the early stage lung cancer is, is uh, difficult, and uh, uh, it is necessary to control the micrometastasis. So that's one. And also, the, we have to tell the chance of the cancerous surgery. But if the uh, disease progressed during the neoadjuvant treatment, then that type of cancer is very bad anyway. So even though we do the surgery first, surgery may be successful, but the disease may come back very quickly. So. So we have to explain and persuade them. Thank you, doctor. So we know that when it comes to surgery, it's operator dependent and also resources dependent. In industrialized countries or high-income countries, we have robotic technology, large staff, large ORs. May not be possible in low-to-middle-income countries. So as we adopt this perioperative uh, regimens. How can we standardize surgery or train surgeons outside of this very small circle to feel comfortable doing surgery after chemoimmunotherapy? Wow, it's a very tough question. <laughs> yeah, but uh, as I said, that the immunotherapy does not affect the surgical difficulty very much. So, so I, we don't think about the immunotherapy very much for the training of the surgeons, but the surgeon, surgery training is, of course, it's a bit difficult. I mean, we don't have the, in Japan, we don't have the, some standard for the training, but it's not very, very, not very in detail. So we have to develop such kind of education program in the future. So, so for the surgeons that are listening to you, you, in your opinion, can say that they should proceed as routine and now we hold for operating patients that may have the combination regimen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but of course we have to be uh, always careful. I mean, the, you, the, if the pulmonary artery was ruptured, then that should be very uh, dangerous. So, so that every caution should be taken. And patient independent, yeah. I guess, too. Mm -hmm. One last question, Tetsuya. Um, you know, you mentioned that between these two arms, looking at dervalumab versus placebo with neoadjuvant chemotherapy, the attrition rate really was about the same. Around 20% of patients didn't get surgery. Pretty comparable in both arms, suggesting derva really not sort of 
preventing more surgeries, although the reasons for not undergoing surgery were a little different in the two arms. My question, though, is, as a non-surgeon, um, that 20% rate, is that a, a high or a low number? I think that most other trials are uh, reporting this, about the same number. And also, if you look at the um, adjuvant treatment trials, like IMPOR-010, so if you think that the surgery plus system therapy is one set, whole set of the treatment, then uh, in IMPOR-010, after the surgery, the number of the patients was... Um, uh, 20% reduced when they received the adjuvant therapy. So that even with the surgery first approach, surgery followed by adjuvant, 20% patient, percent of the patient did not start the uh, adjuvant treatment. So that kind of number is, I mean, even if you do the surgery, that occurs. So I think that cannot be avoided, I mean. And I do have a question for Dusty. As you're seeing the introduction of these perioperative regimens, as a patient advocate and activist, what are your thoughts as we're changing the standard of care for early stage? Well, I, I'm actually also an early stage lung cancer survivor and a long-term one, um, uh, 18 years now. And uh, the, the science has changed so much since uh, 2005. When I was diagnosed, I had um, a, a bilobectomy. So I had the old-fashioned thoracotomy and that was rough. That was very rough, and I, I um, if somebody, and I saw the transition as the, as the uh, thoracic surgeons were becoming, uh, you know, using VATS and and the robotic uh, assisted surgery, and I really encouraged a lot of uh, patients, you know, if you were going to get an old-fashioned thoracotomy, get a second opinion because it's just a huge difference. It can't always be done. I understand that. But and then I had adjuvant chemotherapy. So um, I, I love the work you're doing, and uh, I love the early stage. I want more people to be – I have a pretty boring story, and I love that, and I wish we had more boring um, people uh, who are living longer and better lives after they get surgery and get the cancer out of them. But, um, yeah, that's what I want to see, more early-stage lung cancer patients diagnosed, treated, surgically cured. Dusty, can I just follow up on that one question? We're seeing a lot of neoadjuvant approaches, both immunotherapy and targeted therapy. And you know, for, for some out there, uh, there's this perception that patients don't want to delay surgery, that once they're diagnosed with early stage, they want surgery tomorrow. There's this urgency, because a lot of times patients might have uh, known something was wrong for a little while. Maybe it takes a little while to get in to see the surgeon, to get the workup. They really want surgery quickly. Now we have a lot of evidence that shows neoadjuvant therapy really may improve long-term outcomes, um, but they may not be offered uh, because there's this perception that, well, this patient probably wouldn't want to wait. We should just go right to surgery. What are your thoughts on that? Um, it's a, I think it's probably true that, the, um, in general, a patient does not want to wait. I remember my, my own experience um, years ago. I was very eager to get my surgery, and, you know, not even knowing that I had to, they didn't have neoadjuvant chemotherapy at the time, just adjuvant chemotherapy, and I didn't even know that I was going to have chemotherapy after my surgery, but um, it seemed like an eternity. But I remember a doctor very... Um, compassionately explaining to me, you know, uh, cancer is not an emergency. It's urgent. 
but you don't want to just rush into it. And I think with just a little bit of maybe skills training, and like Tetsuya was talking about, you know, explaining to the patient, talking to them about the benefits of waiting. You know, we've got the same issue when you're talking about biomarkers, right? Um, patients say, start the chemo right now and they you know don't they, they get too impatient and not just the patients the doctors as well some of them are saying you know we don't want to wait that long to get the biomarker results so i think it's kind of the same thing there should be some maybe training on how to deal with these issues because it's better for the patient in the long run if they have a little understanding about you know being patient to wait for the the long-term goal Thank you to the two for your insightful comments. It is also uh, our honor to introduce our guest, Dr. Stephen Chun. is an associate professor of radiation oncology at Andy Anderson. He presented the long-term outcomes by radiation technique for locally advanced non-small cell lung cancer as secondary analysis of NRG oncology RTOG 0617 at five years. Welcome, Dr. Chun. Well, thanks so much for having me. We would like to ask you to summarize the findings of this long-term follow-up, and I think having long-term follow-up help us understand so much because it's not only the big presentation, the big day. We still get data as we move forward. Could you summarize the findings of this follow-up? Oh, absolutely. Um, and if I can kind of go back a little bit and just go into some of the 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 principles of the background and the impetus for this study. Uh, in terms of locally advanced unresectable non-small cell lung cancer, uh, whereas uh, Dr. Mitsudomi was talking about resectable lung cancer, for unresectable locally advanced disease, the standard of care is concurrent chemoradiation, uh, which has been the standard really for the last 20, 30 years at this point. Uh, that being said, the optimal radiation technique to use for this situation has been controversial. Historically, we've used something called 3D conformal radiotherapy. What 3D conformal radiotherapy is, is using radiation essentially aimed at tumors in straight lines that in many cases goes into one part of the body, goes out the other side without sparing uh, substantial amounts of normal tissue. Now, intensity modulated radiotherapy, which is a newer and more modern form of radiotherapy, is able to sculpt and mold radiation dose distributions to complex tumor targets and also to carve around normal tissues like the heart, the lungs, the spinal cord, esophagus, etc. So, the controversy here is that intensity modulated radiotherapy is certainly more costly. It's also more labor intensive to deliver. While there are dosimetric benefits from uh, from intensity modulated radiotherapy, it's it's been unclear whether that translates into meaningful clinical benefits for patients. So in this study, we looked at a large randomized clinical trial, RTOG 0617, that is a phase three randomized clinical trial. Now, radiation technique wasn't the randomization in this trial. The trial was actually stratified by radiation techniques so that the technique 3D or IMRT was equally distributed into the randomization arms of the trial. And 
you might be wondering, why, why did we do an, an analysis in this way? The reason is that there are are no prospective randomized trials comparing 3D technique and IMRT. And furthermore, it is unlikely that a direct comparison phase three clinical trial will ever be performed comparing these techniques. So this is the best, most rigorous analysis we have to have a prospective clinical trial and do a planned secondary analysis based on stratification. Now, initially, at two years, we published outcomes of this trial comparing intensity modulated radiotherapy and 3D conformal technique. We saw a reduction in pneumonitis, but really, there's been skepticism, um, especially without long-term outcomes. So in this in this study, we report the long-term outcomes. So with a median follow-up of 5.2 years, we looked at major oncologic outcomes, we looked at severe toxicity, and we looked at the development of secondary malignancies. Now, um, when we looked at patients treated with intensity modulated radiotherapy and 3D conformal radiotherapy, probably the most important finding of this study was that intensity modulated radiotherapy was associated with a dramatic more than twofold reduction in cases of severe pneumonitis compared with 3D conformal radiotherapy. And we believe that is because IMRT was able to better conform radiation dose to tumor. Now, another interesting finding was that the low dose path or the lung V5 rate, the amount of lung exposed to five ray of radiation, had no impact on severe toxicity or survival. The reason that's important is that the premise of intensity modulated radiotherapy is to spread this low dose path to conform the high dose region. There's been a lot of historic concerns about spreading this low dose path. It seems based upon this analysis that those concerns are unfounded because the lung V5, as I mentioned, didn't impact oncologic outcomes. There were similar rates of second malignancies between 3D conformal and intensity modulated radiotherapy technique. Um, and uh, when looking at overall survival, we saw rather that the heart V40 gray, a rather high dose to the heart, you know, the amount of heart getting 40 gray was one of the most important predictors of survival. And we validated a novel cardiac radiation planning constraint um, that we really should be we, we really should be constraining the heart to receiving no more than 20% um, of the heart receiving 40 gray. Um, lastly, I, I think, you know, one of the most important study findings of the study was that in our analysis of overall survival, there was no significant correlation on multivariable analysis between patient age and long-term outcome. And I, I hear this oftentimes in tumor boards where 
someone will say, oh, well, they're, they're old, they're elderly, you know, we, we shouldn't do chemoradiation for these patients. And really, the findings of this study suggest that age in of itself is not a significant predictor of outcome. Um, we really shouldn't be discriminating against the elderly on the basis of age alone. You know, comorbidities, other factors are one thing, but age in of itself, we should not be precluding people from the possibility of cure on the pure basis of age. Um, and, and in closing, th this is strong evidence from a prospective clinical trial justifying intensity modulated radiotherapy for locally advanced lung cancer. I would argue that intensity modulated radiotherapy on the basis of these findings should be the standard of care for definitive chemoradiation for locally advanced uh, lung cancer. And um, when we think about this historically, it's been 20 30 years since we turned the page on 3D conformal radiotherapy for prostate cancer, for head and neck cancer, for brain cancers, for gynecologic cancers. And we did that based upon far more flimsy data, to be frankly honest. This is prospective data from a randomized clinical trial showing that radiation technique portends a clinically meaningful benefit to patients. And I would just like to, in, clo in closing, uh, convey that it's time for us to turn the page on 3D conformal technique for locally advanced lung cancer. Yeah, well said. I couldn't agree more. And, and you're right. I mean, this isn't the, the question this study was designed to ask, but we can't ask this question. We probably shouldn't, and I don't know that we'd have equipoise to do that. And if you're doing IMRT, I, I can't imagine you would do 3D CRT. And so because of that, though, there are some confounders, I think, in this type of analysis. I think this is very clear to me. I completely agree. I guess my question is an extension of that. Um, these data that we see, you know, this come from the, the NRG uh, network, we know that to participate in these trials, these patients are going to very high-quality radiation networks. The quality control, people may not understand, is so rigorous with NRG studies, with phantoms, things like that. How generalizable are these results to a community radiation oncologist? Uh, so, so interestingly, um, I, I actually am, although I, I'm within the MD Anderson system, I'm, I'm proud to say I'm one of MD Anderson's community radiation oncologists. I'm one of the radiation oncologists who enroll patients in, in one of our community centers. One of our biggest accruers on RTOG 0617 was Dr. Vivek Kavadi, who practices out of Texas Oncology in, a, in another Houston suburb. Um, Dr. Adam Rabin was at, um, in Delaware. Uh, Chris, Christiana, he also was a major en enroller. Um, I, I believe that this is directly applicable to the community. Patients on this trial were enrolled from, com from community centers. Um, and I, I don't, and being a community doctor myself, I, I don't see, you know, a, a difference between uh, academic and, and, and community. I, I don't like to draw that distinction. This is wonderful data when it comes to survivorship. Um, we are creating survivors, we're creating patients, and my question to you is, 
second malignancies has always been in the back. Um, I do have my own cohort of breast cancer survivors that unfortunately now limited tobacco exposure, have lung cancer, intends to be in the radiation field. How will you share the results about secondary malignancies in these patients? What is the impact to this? And also toxicity, cardiac toxicity. Do you think that the data on that is what we can use to continue to promote the use of IMRT to all patients? Uh, th- this is a great point, and, and you know, certainly no radiation oncologist wants to cause a secondary malignancy, which typically occur 10 or more years down the line. That being said, again, one of the principal findings of this study was that the heart V40 gray, which can be specifically reduced by intensity modulated radiotherapy, was highly correlated with survival. I mean, a really dramatic difference in survival for someone who had a heart V40 less than 20% versus greater than 20%. And yes, while perhaps the spread of the low dose path many, many years down the line could have a very small likelihood of of causing another problem, if you if you are not alive to experience um, a secondary malignancy, it's kind of a, a moot point. So um, very clearly in this study, it was the high and intermediate risk doses that were associated with survival. Um, and again, I just stress to have a second malignancy, you have to be alive. I think these data are very clear. And the pneumonitis piece is so critical now because we're using more immunotherapy, more uh, targeted agents, agents that may induce pneumonitis on their own. We're using them around the time of radiation. A lot of times we're now folding them in with radiation. So I think that the case from IRT, IMRT is, is very clear. In this study, um, which you know now is about five years old, just over half of patients had 3D conformal. So how do we take that step? How do we move past that? You, you made the plea. I think it's a strong case. How do we put that into action and sort of encourage uh, the field in general to, to move out, away from, from 3D conformal? Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I think, you know, really, you know, the field is moving in that direction. I think um, having help of our, our advocates who, um, who can advocate from a third-party reimbursement standpoint, one of the barriers we face, you know, there are always financial barriers in, in medicine. And there remain, certainly in the United States, I'm aware of other countries where there's tremendous resistance to authorize intensity modulated radiotherapy on the basis of cost. But, you know, really, again, um, we've got something that provides a a meaningful benefit to patients, um, that this is something that is accepted for many other disease sites, probably on far more shaky data. And um, if we want to move the needle forward, Particularly, you, you mentioned pneumonitis. There's, there's, I think there's going to be a huge interest in how do we make these immunologically cold tumors hot, and and that is is probably going to have implications for pneumonitis. We've got to do everything possible to minimize risk of pneumonitis or um, peri, pericarditis, uh, you, you know. But I think just you know the general principle minimizing radiation exposure um, through conformity 
is going to is going to translate into better outcomes for these patients. Thank you. I would like to thank Ms. Donaldson, Dr. Mitsudami, and Dr. Shant for their time. Um, not only for your time, but all the efforts you continue to do to improve uh, the care of all patients with thoracic malignancies. Uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. We're closing day three of the highlights for the 2023 World Conference on Lung Cancer. And we hope you tune in for more episodes of Lung Cancer Considered. In the future, you can find our podcast in Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and our own website, islc.org, under the news tab. Thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. And goodbye. Thank you for listening to Lung Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues.